Matthew 22, 15 through 46. Please follow along in your Bible or on the uh, screens behind me. Paying taxes to Caesar. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The same day Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Not from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is God's word. Amen. Go ahead and find your Bibles again, if you will, and make your way back to uh, Matthew chapter 22. And as you're doing that, uh, let me pray for our time in God's word. Gracious Father, we are here to hear from you. We're here to lift our voices to you, recognizing that you are the king of heaven and earth, that 
You are our creator. You are our sustainer, that everything we have comes from you, that all that we need is supplied by you, and that you will be faithful to accomplish your purposes. And so we give you praise for that. But Lord, we pray also that you would be at work accomplishing your purposes in our lives right now as you speak your word into our hearts by your spirit. Lord, as we look into the scriptures, will you show yourself to us? Show us who you are. Show us what difference that makes in our lives. Lord, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts eager and ready to be changed by you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've ever watched a a political debate, whether on television or live or one of those town hall type meetings, um, you know full well that people are not really interested in the answer to every question that they ask their opponent. Some of those questions are simply there to try and make the opponent look bad, uh, to trick them into saying something stupid or something that will hurt their cause or to trip them up in their words. Uh, It's kind of a cheap trick when it comes to debate because it doesn't really deal with the issues that are supposed to be discussed, Uh, but it's very effective in swaying public opinion, uh, which is why it's such a common thing to see. And in fact, there's nothing new about that kind of tactic when you're trying to score points in public with somebody that you disagree with. That's the exact same thing that's happening in our passage this morning in Matthew 22. Now this week and next, we're looking at a much larger chunk of Matthew's gospel. We've been working our way through the story of Matthew, the story of Jesus coming to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven and and what it will take for him to accomplish that through the cross and resurrection. And as, uh, as we're getting closer and closer to the moment when he's going to be arrested and crucified, uh, the tension is getting thicker and thick, thicker each story. Um, this week and next, we're looking at four shorter stories uh, that each of which could be its own sermon if you had the time or, or, or wanted to look at that. But what I'm hoping we'll see in looking at them together is that they all work together to make one big point about Jesus and who he is, that nobody can match Jesus's understanding of the scriptures, what, what we would call the Old Testament today. Nobody can match Jesus's understanding of the scriptures because it's these very scriptures that testify to us that he is God's Messiah. And so the scene before us picks up where we left off last week uh, in the beginning of Matthew 22, the conflict that's been brewing between Jesus and some of the religious leaders of Israel, again, just days before he's going to be arrested. Uh, But notice how it starts in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his talk. So we're about to watch a debate, you know, a roundtable forum or, or whatever you want to think of it as. But the Pharisees and the other religious leaders who are, are going to be debating Jesus, they're not really interested in his answers to their questions. This is a trap, if you will. Um, and when the Pharisees and, and Herodians 
can't actually trip Jesus up in verses 15 to 22. They pass the baton to the Sadducees in verses 22 to 33. And when they can't actually trip Jesus up in his words or make him look like a fool, the Pharisees come sweeping back in for another shot at it until at the end, uh, Jesus gets his chance to ask a question. It's almost kind of like if you picture a tennis court where two on one, you got Jesus on one end and you've got two people on the other and they're each taking their turn serving at him and each time Jesus returns it and scores until it's his turn to serve and he gets an ace right away. That's kind of the picture here. I mean, if you look at, at verse 46, look at the result of the debate. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. It's kind of like, I own this court, people. You know, no, no more challenges in this regard. And so what is it that they're actually debating, though? What are the different tennis balls flying across? Well, the topics are actually remarkably diverse. Uh, you know, you were, we go from paying taxes to marriage and the resurrection to what's the greatest commandment in the law and so on. But there is a theme that ties all of these topics together, and that is that they are each challenging Jesus's wisdom and authority as a teacher of God's word. Notice how every single serve starts with the address teacher. Every single time they, they pose a question to Jesus, they start by addressing him as teacher. Verse 16, verse 24, and verse 36. They are challenging what Jesus teaches. If he's really the Messiah, if he's really the long-awaited king of Israel that, that God has promised and that who's going to come and bring deliverance and new life to God's people, then his words should line up with God's word. Uh, what's really interesting about this tactic is that the religious leaders actually have a pretty high view of Scripture. That's the standard they're appealing to as they try and evaluate whether Jesus is who he says he is, even though, again, they're not really interested in his answers. They're just looking for an opportunity to publicly discredit him. They have a high view of Scripture, but a very low view of Jesus. But nobody can match Jesus' understanding of the scriptures. Because those very scriptures bear witness that he is the Messiah, God's eternal son, Israel's true king, and the savior of the entire world. If you're going to read the Bible accurately, if you read it faithfully according to what it's actually saying, it points you to Jesus. That's what he demonstrates through this debate. He's both the lens through which we read all of Scripture and he's the compass by which we navigate all of life. And he shows us his wisdom and authority here in these pages. And so we're actually going to look at just the first two of these stories today, uh, verses 15 to 33. And then next week we're going to come back and catch the, the second half of the debate. And so round one starts in verse 15. So if you'll look at that with me. And the subject of, of the first debate is loyalty according to Scripture. What does loyalty to God really look like according to Scripture? And so again, the, the, the Pharisees and the Herodians are testing his authority and wisdom as a teacher, plotting how to entangle him in his words, verse 15. And they start, which is a very effective tap tactic as well, by kind of buttering him up with a bunch of empty flattery. Uh, look at verse 16. 
they sent, well, first it's interesting, they send their minions after it. They don't actually go themselves. They send the disciples and they team up with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. They don't believe a word of that. We know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion for you're not swayed by appearances. I'm pretty sure they're convinced of that. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And so the question has to do with whether it's lawful for God's covenant people to pay taxes to a foreign oppressor like Rome. Caesar is the emperor of Rome. So it's a question of loyalty. Can you be loyal to God and pay taxes to the emperor at the same time. There's, there's not a specific Old Testament passage in mind, but just the general question of what does faithfulness to God as his covenant people look like? Can you be loyal to God and pay taxes to Caesar? And this was an extremely debated question in Jesus' day. Uh, for starters, Israel very much resented the fact that Caesar had conquered them, that Rome, when, when Rome conquered Greece, Rome got control of Israel as well. And then sent them the bill for their trouble. And so they're having to pay this poll tax every year, and they get nothing for it but oppression. So they very much resented that. Uh, second, the very currency of Rome, their, the coinage, was idolatrous. Uh, in Jesus' day, the denarius read, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. You know, translation, son of God. The divine Augustus. And that's what it said on one side. On the other side, it said Pontifex Maximus. In other words, high priest. Those are blasphemous claims before the one true God. And Israel resented and were offended by that. So offended that when Jesus would have been about 10 years old, a guy named Judas the Galilean started a revolt over this very issue of taxation. And the result was that Rome swiftly crushed the rebellion, uh, leaving crosses around the countryside with dead and dying revolutionaries on them as a warning that paying taxes was not an option. And so it's a hotly debated subject. And that the Pharisees and the Herodians showed up together to ask this question is both strange and brilliant when it comes down to it. Because these two groups, on the one hand, are very much enemies. The Herodians were loyal to Herod. Herod was in league with Rome. That was not a, a very popular position to hold for most of the Jews. The Pharisees were very much against Rome and Roman oppression. And so these guys do not get along. They only have one thing in common, and that's their opposition to Jesus. So it's kind of the, the friend the enemy of my enemy is my friend type idea. That's what brings the, the, the Pharisees and the Herodians together. And, it, and it's actually a brilliant trap when you think about it. Because when they pose this question, there's no good answer to it. If Jesus says, no, it's not lawful to pay the tax to Caesar, there's the Herodians standing right there, and now they have grounds to accuse him of insurrection and rebellion and get him killed. If he says, yes, it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, the Pharisees are standing there, and now they've got grounds to publicly discredit him and to show the crowds how this is not the Savior you're looking for. This is some other guy. But as cunning as they are, 
Jesus is far more clever still. If you look at his answer in verse 18. But Jesus, aware of their malice, their evil intent, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? He sees right through the trap. Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to him, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. So Jesus is set up with this trap. It looks like there's no way out, but instead of going head on, he outflanks both armies at the same time. If you're going to use Caesar's currency, you're already playing his game, people. The fact that you've got it on your body says you're already playing the game. And so so you ought to give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, what belongs to him. And yet, at the same time, Jesus upholds the supreme authority uh, to God, preeminent loyalty to God. So there's a proper loyalty to Caesar, but there's a preeminent loyalty to God. Give to God what belongs to God. And since he's the king of the universe, that means everything. So he still trumps Caesar, even though there's a proper respect for Caesar. Respect God, excuse me, respect Caesar, but God reigns supreme. And that answer left the Pharisees and the Herodians speechless. They, they had nothing to come back to him on. But they weren't really interested in his answer anyway. They weren't looking for guidance on the question. His answer is, however, instructive for us, though. It does help us think through some things about what it means like to be loyal to God when we live in in a place where our governing leaders do not share that same loyalty all the time. So so how do we express our loyalty to God in, in that environment? How does Jesus as our king guide us in the truth here? In saying, give back to Caesar what's Caesar's and give back to God what's God's, Jesus is not advocating kind of this sharp divide between secular and sacred. So secular meaning there's some parts of life that are worldly, and whatever deals with that, you know, give that to Caesar. And then there's some parts of life over here that are religious, and whatever deals with that, you know, give that to God. And then just keep those two things separate. That's what our culture likes to tell us. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Nor is he setting loyalty to government over against loyalty to God, as though you can't have both of those at the same time. That's one of the assumptions that a lot of the Jews had in that day. I can't be loyal to Caesar and loyal to God at the same time. And Jesus isn't saying that either. Rather, what he's showing us is that loyalty to government is part of your loyalty to God. At least as long as we live in a fallen world, until Christ returns. Loyalty to government is part of your loyalty to God. If you think of Paul's instructions in Romans 13, at least as long as we're living out our days in a fallen world, waiting for the fullness of God's kingdom. And that tension is super important to understand and trying to think through these kinds of things. Jesus' kingdom will displace Caesar in the end. He is supreme. And Jesus' kingdom will displace all other kingdoms in the end. Jesus is the king of kings. That means all other kings are going to bow to the true king. 
But unlike what many of the Jews in his day were expecting, the Old Testament did not foresee that kingdom being claimed through a violent rebellion. That's kind of what they were hoping for. But rather, the Old Testament showed us the scriptures that Jesus knows far better than the Pharisees and Herodians. It showed us that God would establish his kingdom through a suffering servant. You think of Isaiah 53, one who who rather than taking up the sword, conquers the kingdoms of this world by letting them do their worst to him on the cross and then rising victoriously from the grave, disarming the enemies and conquering them through life. And so it's through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that God's kingdom is beginning on This earth, it's already begun, but it won't yet be complete until he returns. So we we live in this overlap where the old kingdom of the world is still hanging on and still fighting. And in the meantime, as we live out our days, we do so as resident aliens, as exiles and strangers and wanderers following the pattern of our suffering king. And so our true citizenship is in heaven, but we are ambassadors for Christ on earth and will be until the king returns. Peter describes this dynamic, this tension of being loyal to God, but showing that loyalty to God in part by being loyal to governing authorities in 1 Peter 2, verses 11 through 17. You can flip there if you'd like. The words will also be behind me. But 1 Peter 2, verse 11 Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject to the Lord for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether to the emperor as supreme or to governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. What an incredible tension to uphold, where our ultimate loyalty is to God, but as we live out our days as, as sojourners and wanderers waiting for the fullness of his kingdom, we show that honor to God by respecting the governing authorities he's placed over us. Now, that does not mean that there won't come times when Caesar and God are at odds with each other such that you have to make a choice a choice that could cost you everything. And for the faithful, that choice is clear. Also from Peter in Acts 5.29, when he was told by the ruling authorities, you got to shut up about Jesus. you got to stop this stuff. And Peter's response is, we must obey God rather than men. So it's not like the clash never gets so serious that you have to choose sides. Uh, and it, it's frankly a choice that more and more people are going to have to make in our culture today, where people and businesses and schools and nonprofit organizations are finding themselves penalized for holding historic 
Christian beliefs about human life and human sexuality. I mean, if you live in Boston or really anywhere in the country, you've seen the news about Gordon College and the, and the, the uh, uproar over uh, President Lindsay's recent signing of his name to a document, to a letter that was drafted by President Obama's director of faith outreach for his last campaign. So these are friends. But this letter was drafted to uh, request that an impending executive order not automatically disqualify from federal funding those who hold to what the Bible teaches about sexuality and marriage, that sex is for marriage and that marriage is for one man and one woman. So the fact that that was even asked that, that, that a Christian organization could live according to its Christian beliefs was outrageous. And tomorrow the president plans to sign that order without any religious exemption, period. And so as analyst Rod Dreher writes, Christian and other religious groups that receive federal money to do things like feed the poor, and listen to his words here, will have to decide between Christ and Caesar. There will come times where we have to make that decision. Now, it's tempting to be outraged about that, and it's certainly something we should be sad about. But if you're going to play with Caesar's currency, you're going to play by Caesar's rules. And those rules are rapidly changing today. Where religious liberty used to be a cherished value of this country, it's eroding in different ways uh, in both public opinion and public policy. And, and we can weep about that and whine about it, and we can and should use whatever processes our government has given us for registering our appeal. But at the end of the day, we're being reminded what the early church was reminded of daily, that we are strangers and aliens here. It's what our brothers and sisters across the globe are reminded of daily. In the city of Mosul in Iraq in 2003, it was home to 30,000 plus Christians. 2003. As of noon yesterday, the city was completely cleared out. Not a single Christian left. They're either killed or exiled. The Islamic State in Iraq and Syria uh, has been at work. Friends, we are strangers and aliens in this world. Our kingdom is not of this world, and yet we live out our days here. And we can no longer think that we're going to do so as a so-called moral majority. There is no moral majority in America anymore. And I'm not sure there ever should have been in some ways because of the fusion between God and country that so often became idolatrous. But biblical Christianity now, according to Russell Moore, is a prophetic minority. It's a prophetic minority. It's speaking the word of God from the margin. That is the future of Christianity in America. And if we follow Jesus' lead and seek to be loyal according to Scripture, then the question we need to be asking ourselves more and more is not how I can change the culture per se, but what does it look like to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see not your outrage, not your snarky comments on Facebook, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. 
What does love and respect without compromise look like? Those are the questions we need to be wrestling with as we live out our days seeking to be loyal to God and respectful of governing leaders that we don't always agree with. And we also need to remember that the gospel flourishes under persecution. That a victory for the culture is not a defeat for the cause of Christ. Not if the cross is any indication. There could have been no greater defeat for the cause of Christ than to get him killed and publicly mocked. And yet it was the very cross that bore the kingdom. So Jesus shuts down the Pharisees on their argument, their trap of trying to get him to say something stupid and be discredited. In fact, their trap proved the opposite of what they were attempting to prove. Uh, what they were, the words that they used to kind of butter him up in verse 16, actually they proved them true through his response. That he is true and he te- teaches the way of God truthfully, unlike all of them. Nobody can match Jesus' understanding of the scriptures because those very scriptures bear witness that he is the Messiah. They're not going to outsmart him in this regard. And so the scorecard so far is Jesus one, opponents zero. But as the the Pharisees and and the Herodians leave, they tag the Sadducees who then come in for round two. So look at verses 23 to 28 with me. The same day the Sadducees came to him, who say there's no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up his children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother, and so too the second and third down to the seventh. After them all the woman died. And in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. They're kind of setting up their little trap. Now, we have met the Sadducees before in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, back in chapter 3 and chapter 16. And they had very strong political ties to Rome. They had a lot of control in Judea. And unlike the Pharisees, who tended to add their own rules and traditions to God's word, the Sadducees tended to take those away, take certain doctrines away from Scripture. So they were skeptical of things that were kind of supernatural. So, so they, didn't, they denied the existence of angels and demons. They denied the existence of a human soul, uh, for instance. And then as Matthew tells us, they denied the resurrection. Uh, they believed that death was final, that was the last word, and there was no more. No afterlife, whether spiritual or physical. And so hope was limited to what God could accomplish in this lifetime. That was their frame of reference. All you got is this. And so whereas the Pharisees tested Jesus on the topic of loyalty, according to Scripture, the Sadducees are testing him on the topic of hope, according to Scripture. What hope do we really have as they challenge the resurrection? Now, When you and I hear the word resurrection, we almost immediately think of Christ's resurrection on Easter Sunday. And there's a good reason we think that. Um, 
But the bodily resurrection of the dead was something that most Jews were hoping in for themselves in Jesus' day. It was something that, it was a hope that the Old Testament scriptures held out for them. You think of Martha's words to Jesus when Lazarus dies, and Jesus was too late to get there to stop it. And, and Jesus says to her, your brother's going to rise from the dead. And Martha says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So, so they have this hope of the resurrection that all God's people will be raised from the dead on the last day. And it is something that the Old Testament scriptures promised in, in places like Daniel 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So when Jesus rose from the dead on Easter morning, he took this promise of the future and he broke into the present with it in order to give new life in part and, and in advance and then the sure uh, assurance and hope of the resurrection to come. And so through faith in Christ, our souls are reborn. That's resurrection language. And when Christ returns, our bodies will be raised physically from the dead, just like Jesus' body. And you can look at Philippians 3, 20 through 21, or 1 Corinthians 15, if that idea is a little bit new. Um, but it's a very physical, not just spiritual hope, but a very physical hope that God is going to undo everything that sin has corrupted. And that means life, even physical life, will reign in the end through the resurrection. That's our true hope according to Scripture. The Sadducees didn't believe any of that. And so they bring this question to Jesus. Again, not because they are interested in the answer. They already made up their mind. But because they want to make Jesus and this doctrine look stupid. They want to embarrass him. And so they start with this set of instructions from Deuteronomy 25 about what's called leveret marriage. Uh, so Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 6. You don't have to turn there, but it is above me. Um, if brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Now that instruction sounds very silly to us today. Uh, and, and one could opt out of it. There was an out for the brother if he didn't want to do something like that. But, but the idea is that it was kind of important in a society where your legacy and heritage was dependent on your family line's continuation. So if you think of the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, for example... Boaz redeems Naomi by having a son for her with Ruth so that Naomi's husband's line is not blotted out in Israel. His, his line continues. And, and that idea played very well into the Sadducees' framework because what's the big deal about passing on the family name unless that's the only afterlife there is, your legacy? They liked that idea. And so to make their point, they come up with this kind of absurd you know, story about seven uh, brothers and a woman who ends up being married seven times and then asking them, okay, so which, one, which husband will she have then in the resurrection? If this hope of the resurrection is so true, answer me this. But look at Jesus' response in verse 29. Back in Matthew 22, verse 29. But Jesus answered them, 
you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. The Sadducees had two problems. They didn't really know what scripture taught, that God will raise the dead according to Daniel 12.2 or Isaiah 26.19. And they didn't really believe that God was powerful enough to accomplish what the scriptures promised. So they didn't know the scriptures and they didn't know the power of God. Their version of hope was really no hope at all. They were also confused about the nature of marriage as it relates to the resurrection, which, again, that's not really what they were after, but it is a mistake they have, and Jesus answers it anyway. If you look at verse 30, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. One scholar explains that when God raises people to new life, they will have passed into a new world order in which death itself has been left behind. No more death. There will be no need to propagate the species, therefore, and and hence no need for sexual activity. Now, most humans find it very hard to think of a non-sexual world, but that's probably what Jesus means when he says that resurrected people will be like angels. And if you grumble that this makes God a killjoy, remember what C.S. Lewis said. Asking if there will be sexual activity in the future world is like the child who, on being told that it was the greatest pleasure known to humans, assumed that people ate chocolates at the same time. We, We don't have a category for the pleasures and joys of heaven. Okay? That's the point there. Leave it to Lewis. So, so they have this confusion about marriage and, and the resurrection, but that really was only a symptom of their deeper misunderstanding, which is the hope of the resurrection and the power of God. And so Jesus continues in 31. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Now, when I first read that, that sounded like a bit of a strange argument. Uh, But it makes sense if you think about it. Jesus is suggesting that the fact that that when God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, and he he said uh, that he... Jesus is making a point that the fact that God didn't use past tense verbs there, I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but rather used present tense verbs, I am the God of Abraham and so on, Jesus is making the point that that's a significant detail not to be overlooked. Their souls, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is their God because their souls are still alive in his presence. He's holding them in life still. And one day they will be raised along with all God's people, past, present, and future, to enjoy the new world that God is making. And so the Sadducees didn't get the scriptures or the power of God. And so just like the Pharisees and the Herodians, uh, Jesus returns their serve for a point. Now, not that the Sadducees were convinced, um, but the crowds were certainly impressed by Jesus' teaching. And again, where, where the Sadducees aren't really interested in the question that they're asking, Jesus' answers, once again, are pretty instructive for us, though, as we think about, again, what does it mean to live out our days in a fallen world waiting for the hope 
of the resurrection and the fullness of God's kingdom. First, we're reminded that as good as marriage is, it's always meant to be temporary in the eternal scope of things. So it's a picture of the ultimate hope that we have in our union with Jesus. You think of Ephesians 5 or Revelation 19. We talked a bit of that imagery last week with the uh, or t- yeah, last week with the wedding supper of the lamb, that picture. That's what the whole marriage enterprise is meant to point us toward. Uh, John Piper describes the the momentary nature of marriage like this. In the end, the shadow will give way to reality. The partial will pass into the perfect. The foretaste will lead to the banquet. A hundred candlelit evenings will come to their consummation in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this momentary marriage will be swallowed up by life. Christ will be all in all, and the purpose of marriage will be complete. It's a beautiful picture of what our marriages are ultimately pointing us to, a longing and a joy and a union that we can only just begin to imagine based on the categories that our marriages give us. And so it's good to keep that in mind, to help us honor marriage without idolizing it. So to honor it, it's good. It's a gift. It is from God. But it is not God. It is not our ultimate hope. And if you treat it like that, you will be disappointed. So that's one of the things that's a good reminder from what Jesus is saying. But second, and more central to his message here, is is to rest our ultimate hope in God and his resurrection power according to the scriptures. The death and decay that marks this fallen world while we wait for Jesus' return, so the worldliness and wickedness that we put up with that's in our own hearts, the evil and brokenness, the sin and the sorrow, Jesus Christ came to do away with that. And no matter how bad it gets, whether through persecution or sickness or disease, death is not the end of the story for those who have a risen Savior. We need to wrestle with that hope. We need to wrestle and and let our hearts be filled with that hope. We know it's true because Scripture foretold it, and Scripture bears witness to us that it happened. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. Death is now a defeated enemy. And there will come a day when John's vision in Revelation 21 will be true. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, 
for the former things have passed away. That is the message of Scripture. That is the power of God. That is the hope of the resurrection. And nobody can match Jesus' understanding of these things and try and make him look like a fool. Because the Scripture themselves bear witness to us that he is the Messiah who's going to bring all of this to completion. And so you cannot claim loyalty to God in his word without trusting in the truth and power of Jesus. Both the Pharisees and the Sadducees tried to do that. They tried to, you know, they had a relatively high view of scripture uh, and they tried to honor God while rejecting Jesus at the same time. The problem is that when you do that, you end up with neither Jesus nor the scriptures. Because if the scriptures are pointing you to him, you have to have him. Jesus is the centerpiece of God's plan of salvation. He is the power of God through the Spirit for a hope that will not disappoint. The lens through which we read all of Scripture, the compass for navigating all of life, he is the king who reigns supreme. May we be found loyal to him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. Thank you that you have made your son known to us by sending him to earth and by leaving us a witness to him through your scriptures, through your people. Thank you that everything that is wrong in our world, that is wrong with our own hearts, that Christ deals with that and has dealt with it through his cross and resurrection. Lord, may the hope of the resurrection, the hope of life, may the sufficiency of Jesus be our greatest joy and boast. And Lord, as we walk our days through who knows what, uh, arguments at work, uh, difficulties at home, financial trials, physical ailment, sickness, disease, broken family relationships. Lord, you know how messed up this world is. And would you remind us that whatever trail we're walking in it, that we are not alone, that we have a hope that will not disappoint as long as we have Jesus, and that he knows the suffering that we bear. He has borne it in our place already. Lord, give us hope and give us perspective to persevere. Give us a loyalty that redounds to our King. And Lord, we pray that all of our ministries, all of our relationships would be marked by that hope and that loyalty, Lord.